morning, good morning, good morning. Good to be here with you all again. I want to welcome you all, especially if you're visiting with us here at Antioch. And we sure hope, like you heard, there's a card that says kind of like it here. We sure hope you kind of like it here. And we hope this is a body that you like. But even more than that, we want to say to you, don't stop searching until you find a body that can both invest in you and that you can pour out for. And so we pray that you will find that body and that maybe this would be your home. We are, as we like to say, a Bible-believing, note-taking church, so I'm going to ask you to take something out, to take some notes, because we come with high expectation and anticipation that God has something to say to us every time we open his words, regardless of who the speaker might be. When I first started preaching 25 years ago, I found myself hearing from God and then thinking, well, how do I share this? How, how am I going to preach this? And then I started hearing over time a whisper, a gentle whisper from God, an encouragement God. It was sweet. And it said this. He said this. Hey, not everything I share is for everybody else. Sometimes it's just for you and me. And I keep a treasure of those just for you and me words. And to be honest with you, this topic that I'm going to teach on, the theme of this morning, it started out that I thought this was just for me and him. I wasn't sure whether or not I should share this with everyone. And then as Andrew talked about the preaching calendar and I was put into this slot, I felt like maybe, and I felt an encouragement from God that this was for more than just me. And one of the confirmations of my sharing this with you this morning came from a book that I was reading while I was preparing. It was a book that Andrew gave to me. It was a book of letters from C.S. Lewis to an Italian Catholic priest and this beautiful writing relationship that took between the, the two of them. And this book was a collection of those letters and in those letters, I found a confirmation that made me think, yes, this is to be shared with more than just me. Because in one of those letters, Lewis writes, and he's in his late 50s at this time, as for myself, during the past year, a great joy has befallen me. And he goes on to write about a discovery that surprised him and changed him. A discovery of something that he thought he already knew. And then in his late 50s, rediscovered in a new and a wonderful way. He thought he knew it. He thought he believed it. He thought he always believed it, but only recently had come to understand and believe and appreciate the fullness of what he had just rejoiced in. It's this treasure... <laughs> that I pray I get to communicate to you today. If there is any power and impact in the message that we are sharing today, I can guarantee you it is not going to be because anything is new. I guarantee you both the main character of the message and the main theme of the message are central to our faith. And so there will not be any power in somehow something new jumping out. Instead, I listen and hope and share with anticipation that the Holy Spirit is going to drive something deeper in us, something that we thought we already knew. 
The way I hope to shine a light on the treasure is through a deep, deep dive into the life and the faith journey of the Apostle, Apostle Peter. If any of you know me, you know I'm kind of obsessed with Peter. A lot of people think that I'm obsessed with Peter because I'm so much like Peter. That might partially be true. But I'm obsessed with Peter because of all the scriptures, we look and we have the most, out of most of the characters, the detail of his life. Deep, personal conversations. His thoughts, because he didn't keep them to himself. Encounters between him and Jesus that don't exist between other followers of Christ. And I don't take that as an accident. And so I'm always asking God, why? Why do we have such detail of this one man's life? So I'm going to ask for you to stand with me to read God's word. It's just one verse, 1 Peter 1, 3, and I'm going to read it slow because every statement is a message and actually a journey in itself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me pray. Lord, I've just told everyone there's nothing special here. Even when we are opening your word, unless it is kissed by your lips and power from your heart, it means nothing. And so I ask you as we share together, because we're hungry, because we're asking, come and touch this time that we may meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like I'm, am I breaking in and out of this? It feels like my microphone's going on. Okay, good. Like I said, I've always been struck by the detail and the depth, and I get on several journeys of why, why the detail and why the depth. And it is my latest journey with Peter that has led to the message I'm sharing today. I've done my best now to go and chronologically order the events of Peter's life. It's probably not perfect because we're not certain of the exact order of the events, but I'll submit that it's close enough for us to get what we need. So we're going to walk through Peter's life again with why so much detail. And so it starts with Peter's calling. Jesus calls Peter while teaching others. He notices some fishermen. It doesn't seem we have no indication that those fishermen, two boats, have any interest in what Jesus is teaching. They're actually pulling up their boats. They're cleaning their nets. And they don't show any interest in what Jesus is teaching. There were two boats. Jesus picks Simon, who now going forward, I'm going to call Peter, because that's the name Jesus eventually gave to Simon. And he calls out Peter's boat and he said, hey, could you push a little way out with me on your boat so that I can teach more people? Because a larger crowd had gathered. And so Peter does that. That was kind of the easier response. The harder request was that when Jesus said, and afterwards, after he was done teaching, could you 
put down your nets for a catch. Now Jesus is starting to meddle a little bit. Because if there's anything Peter knew, it was fishing. And he'd been out all night, and they had already cleaned their nets. And I know Jesus, I know, I believe Peter's mind is like, I may not know a lot, but I know fishing. And there are no fish out there. And my nets are clean. But instead, he responds, Master, we worked all night and hard and caught nothing, but at your bidding... I will put down my nets. And the catch is so large that it begins to tear the nets and requires both crews from both boats to bring in the catch. And Peter falls at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me, O Lord. I am a sinner. An incredible revelation for a fisherman who wasn't even listening to Jesus' teaching. And this is what he transitions to. Jesus responds, don't don't fear. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come, Peter, and follow me. And he did. Peter, at that moment, (laughs) dropped everything and followed Jesus. Peter left his personal identity because he was a fisherman. Peter left his security and his provision for himself and for his family. Peter left his community, his wife, and his family. Peter left everything instantly to follow Jesus. And it's worth noting, Peter left everything while knowing nothing. Nothing. He did not at that time fully understand who Jesus was. He did not have any idea where he was going. He had no idea of how he and his family would be provided for. He had no idea what he would be asked to do. After all, what does it mean if somebody says you're going to be a fisher of men? And he had no idea if he would ever return. And still, Peter left everything, knowing nothing. And at that point, I lose any ability or right to judge anything Peter did from that time on. Along his journey, Peter had special and unique encounters with Jesus, encounters, experiences, and conversations with Jesus that even the other disciples didn't have. Peter had a very unique relationship with Jesus and very unique exchanges with Jesus that are shared with us in the scriptures. His experiences, Peter saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. Jesus was beckoned to Peter. Jesus beckoned to Peter to step out and walk on the water with Jesus. It was it is Peter that most questions Jesus for clarity. We see Peter raise the questions when Jesus is walking through the crowd and he says, who touched me? It's Peter who says, come on, Lord, everybody's touching you. What do you mean who's touching you? It is Peter who asks about paying taxes. It is Peter that asks about what Jesus means when he says he's going to die. What do you mean you're going to die? We have given up everything to follow you. Where does that leave us? 
Peter was one of the only three disciples who witnessed Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Then after Jesus offended the Jews and many of his disciples by claiming to be better than Moses and insisting that everybody must eat his body if they want to live eternally, causing many of those who are following to leave, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, do you now want to leave too? And it's Peter who responds. Lord, where would we go? Where would we go? You have words of eternal life, and we believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus confirms, Peter, what you just said could only come directly from God. We know Peter heard from God. Then there is exchange, beautiful exchange with Peter over Jesus trying to wash his feet. Peter refuses. Personally, I think this is a really understandable response. If the Lord bends down to wash my feet, I think Peter's response, no, Lord, I want to wash your feet, is a pretty appropriate response. Jesus clarifies, but if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part in me and Peter. And look at Peter's response. Then all of me, my hands, my feet, all of me. That's not silly. That's not impetuous. That's beautiful. Then all of me. Then, as Jesus' death gets close, we have some intensely personal and powerful exchanges between Jesus and Peter. Peter, Lord, where are you going? Jesus, Peter, you will follow me later. Why can't I follow you now, Lord? I will die for you. Then this response and personal prayer from Jesus over Peter. Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail you. And when you turn back again, And I think this prayer saved Peter. When you turn back again, help the others. Jesus then tells Peter the truth. It's going to be this very night that you will betray me. And not once, but three times. It is obvious that Jesus and Peter had an incredibly special relationship. And this is further confirmed even when they go into the garden because Jesus takes eight and he walks them into the garden and he leaves the eight and he takes only three, Peter being one of them, and takes them further into the garden, those three being closer to Jesus than the others. And when they fell asleep, those three, Jesus only calls out Peter. Peter, really? An hour? 
That's not a joke. That's not sarcasm. I think it's prophetic. Peter, only an hour. And when the guards show up to take Jesus, it looks at first like Peter indeed will live out his promise to Jesus because he draws his sword against armed guards that meant insurmountable odds and certainly when he knew he drew that sword that he was going to die. And still he drew his sword. And Jesus tells him, put away the sword, Simon. Jesus is taken. Peter follows him, but at a safe distance. And then that horrible event. Peter's confronted three times. Each time his denial gets stronger. First, I don't know who you're talking about. Second, I don't know him. Third, Swearing and cursing for effect. I tell you, I don't even know the man. And it's finished. And Luke's gospel records that Jesus looked at him. And Peter went out. And it says he went away and he wept bitterly. And it's hard to express the strength of that word bitterly so Peter's life the facts Peter was strong and capable and as any person can be in the natural not only did Peter have unusual natural strength and endurance he also had unique first hand encounters experiences and knowledge of Jesus experience and conversation and proximity that you and I will not have in terms of face-to-face -face encounter. There's no evidence, listen to this, there's no evidence, none, that Peter ever stopped believing that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. Peter never stopped believing in Jesus. Peter had seen it on the transfiguration confirmed by Elijah and by Moses. He had heard it confirmed by God. He knew it from his encounters. He knew and never stopped believing this is the Holy One of God. Fourth, there's compelling evidence and overwhelming evidence that Peter loved Jesus. As much as any man could love Jesus, Peter loved Jesus. Jesus. And Peter, at the time that he made his commitments and promises, fully believed that he would live those commitments out. He wasn't being verbose or grandiose. He meant every promise that came out of his mouth. I will die for you. So I would contend at least to a great extent and possibly to the greatest extent, Peter was a man without excuse. He was a man without excuse forever denying Jesus. And yet, Peter, the rock, denied Jesus. And I think this is important. Peter denied Jesus while still believing in Jesus. 
Peter denied Jesus while still knowing the truth of Jesus. And Peter denied Jesus while still loving Jesus. Some might explain this failure away, put this type of failure as no longer possible for you and I, because Peter didn't have the Holy Spirit. I would submit to you that Peter was not perfect even after receiving the Spirit, and neither was Paul, and neither are you, and neither are I. This kind of failure is still possible for you and I. As our series of the Holy Spirit made clear, there is no Christianity without the Holy Spirit. There is no truth confirmed. There is no power to live. Nothing is possible without the Holy Spirit. And, and, we, believing Christians, still can grieve the Holy Spirit by not seeking him, and we can quench the Holy Spirit by when we hear him refusing to listen. We, as believers, still can fail Jesus. I know this is true because I've read the testimonies of godly men and women over centuries that have confessed that this has been a failure of theirs. I know this is true because it's actually what C.S. Lewis was writing about. One of the greatest Christian writers and apologists and defenders of the faith in all time, and yet it's in his late 50s that he discovered something that even he said he thought he already knew. I know this is true because I have lived it. And not early on. I have lived it in my third decade of following Jesus. I believe that all who know me would reason of the well would say that I am strong, that I have been given a strong measure of perseverance, faithfulness, and endurance. I do not say that with arrogance because in like in most cases, those same characteristics are both strengths and weaknesses like all characteristics. I have followed Jesus for over 36 years. I think I can honestly say that I too heard the invitation to come and follow me. And I dropped a lot, not everything, but a lot to listen to that call and follow Jesus. I dropped a lot to grab hold of what Paul would say, grab hold of what Jesus first grabbed hold of me. I have followed Jesus. I'm approaching my 60th missionary trip to places like Haiti, Russia, Romania, Jakarta, Ukraine, many of the sites in camps during the refugee crisis. I've gone to places while there was widespread sickness, revolution, and even wars. I've encountered God all over the world in both beautiful and horrific consequences. And I've never seen him be unfaithful. Never. And I say all this to simply submit to you that like Peter, I said yes to following Jesus. I've served him for all of my 35 plus years. Like Peter, more than that, God has given me a good measure of endurance, perseverance, and faithfulness. 
and strength. Even more than that, I have had literally hundreds of personal experiences, encounters with the living Christ that are undeniable. I have had the Holy Spirit with me, and I know his voice well because I've heard him for decades. Most important of all, I am deeply in love with Jesus. He is the greatest compulsion and he is greatest purpose and power in my life. And yet, like Peter, I am a man without excuse. And, and, like Peter, I have seen a time where I was unable to be as fully faithful to Jesus as I owed him for all that he had revealed to me. And not early on in my walk. I'm talking recently. I'm talking now. My third decade of following Jesus has been the hardest by far. Somewhere in the journey of the past several years, I found myself unable to do what I needed to be able to do, what I should have been able to do, and do what I most wanted to do. I was not able to be completely and fully faithful to Jesus. Not in belief, never stop believing, not even close, not in action or service, certainly not in love. I loved him more than I've ever loved him. But in my pain, I became afraid and withdrew some of my trust. And in doing that, I denied Jesus. Like Peter, events in my life started to spin out of my understanding and out of my control. They spun faster, harder, sadder, and kept coming for longer than I ever thought was possible. I am not going to list the specifics because if I start to list the details, it can't help but starting to sound like excuses. And I'm here to tell you, I'm a man without excuse. And that's just the truth. What did denial look like in my case? Although I never lost my faith, not even close, I never stopped my pursuit of God. I spent hours pursuing him, almost without fail every day. Even though I never lost my love for God, I love him more than I ever have before. Even with all that intact, even though I have never been more sure that God is good, and in fact the only good in the world, some of my disciplines began to slide. First, I left my basement. And some of you know how special my basement has been to me. For 30 plus years, my basement was the place that I encountered God and I could tell you the spots that I knew he was real and powerful and had touched me. And my basement were some of the deepest anguish that I had felt. And I let the pain take me away from the encounters. I left my spot because of the memories of the pain. And in doing that, I left some of my encounters behind. In doing that, I left some of my story behind. In doing that, I let some of my history behind. And I started to leave a gap of distance between me and Jesus. Second, 
My fasts began to slip away. I have fasted the first day of the week for decades to launch into my week. And all of a sudden, that started to slip away. I didn't want the pain, hunger, the hunger pain anymore. Things were hard enough. And I decided I didn't want to fight through the discomfort and the actual how hard it is for me to fast. And so I stopped. And then I knew I needed to pick it back up, and I tried to pick it back up, and I couldn't. I would try. It would get hard. I would fail. And so eventually, I just quit altogether. More distance between what had established me with my God. I haven't ever consumed, over-consumed alcohol since college, and I still don't. And I still haven't. But it's not about the amount. It's the why. I still only have one glass. But I noticed how much I leaned towards that glass. And that was a sign. That I was beginning to lean into things rather than lean into God. I knew I was leaning into them more than I should. I went through year, three years of intense back pain that took every activity that I loved. And then I had surgery. And then I was given pain medication. Again, this is not a crisis. I did not overprescribe. I did not go outside of my prescription. It's not wrong. It's just that I noticed the lean. I noticed how much I leaned on the relief that I knew I could get here, that I started to lack the trust that I would get here. Does that make sense? And I knew something was happening in my heart. I knew it. No one had to tell me. I knew I was getting distance. And I knew what had happened. I had become afraid. For the first time in my life, See, I'd started sleeping in more, still spent time with God. What difference does it make? Whether it's real early or a couple hours later, I still spent the time. It was bad for me because what I was doing is I was afraid to step into the day because I was afraid of what it would bring. And two more hours in bed, it was a transfer of trust without a loss of love. This is making sense. I had become afraid, and I think that's what happened to Peter. Just my opinion. I think Peter, look, look, Peter raised his sword in the garden against insurmountable gods. He was sure it would cost him his life, and yet he did it. And then just a short time later, in front of a fire with unarmed people, he denies Jesus. And I submit to you, I think it was because he was already beginning to lose proximity with Jesus. When he was in the garden, he was standing right next to the Holy One of God. And when he was by the fire, things had started to spin out of his control and his understanding. And it started to raise question in him about himself and about Jesus. That doesn't mean he stopped believing. But he started saying, does he know what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. 
Is he still in control? Because the plan didn't look anything like Peter's, it started to raise questions as to whether or not the Holy One of God was still in control. And while loving him, while believing him, while knowing who he was, Peter got afraid, and so he denied Jesus. The Holy One of God confused Peter. And in that confusion, he got afraid. And that's what happened to me. All my slips of discipline, all my yielding, what, what I had always, yielding of what I'd always leaned on, it was because I'd gotten afraid. I was afraid of the next trial. I was afraid of the next pain. Even though he had been so faithful in all the others, I started to think the next one would be the one that would take me down. It's hard for me. If you know me, this is really hard for me to admit, but it's just true. And I can't get to the treasure unless I go through this. And so I got afraid. I started allowing questions to come into my heart. And I gave them oxygen. I let them breathe too long. And I'm telling you, I'm not talking about being out of the word. I'm not talking about not worshiping. I'm not talking about, I just gave them enough room. And when you give them enough room, they grow. And you give them power. They don't have power, but you give them power. And you may think this is too harsh a description that I say I denied Jesus. (laughs) But I'm telling you, this is not humility This is not self-deprecation. This is truth. And I know it's true because I talk to God about it almost every day. I would go to his feet and say, this is what's happening. And not once did he ever correct me and say, don't worry about that. I know it's true because God confirmed it's true. And you're never going to convince me otherwise, even if you try after. And I don't want you to. And the reason I don't want you to, it's because of my denial that I discovered what Lewis had discovered in his late 50s. And I'm not going to let you take that from me. I finally understand. I finally, for the first time, understand the depth of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I think I understand forgiveness like Peter understood forgiveness. And that's a gift. You see, Peter knew exactly what he had done. Peter knew exactly who he had denied. Peter knew there was no wife, there was no counselor, there was no friend, there was no rabbi who could release the truth of what he had done. He felt guilty, he felt shame, he felt remorse, he felt sadness, he felt regret, and all of it was right because all of it was true. And Peter knew it was true. So it wouldn't have mattered how many people talked to him. In the end, he could say, but I did this to the man, the God, the Holy One of God that I love, and no one, and Peter knew no one could take that away from him. 
he denied the Holy One of God while knowing it's the Holy One God. And there is no excuse for that. And there is no fix for that. And Peter knew it. Peter had seen Jesus confront comfort those who were beyond comfort. He had seen Jesus redeem the irredeemable. He had seen Jesus heal the broken that were beyond repair. He had seen Jesus raise to life the ones that death said could never be raised. Peter had seen Jesus, seen Jesus fix things that were unfixable. And he knew that the only one the only one that could redeem this was Jesus. And Jesus was dead. And when Jesus died, so did all hope for Peter. And then, and then he wasn't dead. Because the women came and they said, He's alive. And they were told, go tell Peter and the others. He's alive. Peter had no idea of what the fullness of that meant at the time that he heard it. But he did know he now had hope of a rescue. Hope now was alive again. And so he ran. And he ran to the grave. Because he needed Jesus to fix, Peter needed Jesus to fix what Peter had done against Jesus. Don't we all? You know the rest of the story. Jesus forgives Peter. Jesus restores Peter. Jesus sends Peter no less than Jairus' daughter. Peter had been raised from the dead. And Peter has changed going forward. Yes, because of Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, that's to be certain. But I submit to you that Peter would be and could be the man he became because now he knew how badly he needed the Holy Spirit. He knew he couldn't live without the Spirit and without forgiveness. He now understood the need for all that he had. Peter had seen Jesus rescue, save, and forgive, and restore others. Now Peter had been saved, rescued, restored by Jesus. This is the discovery Lewis wrote about in his letter, the fullness of forgiveness. That's what he was talking about in my late fifties. When he wrote, I have a new joy. It was, he was describing his discovery after 50 years of knowing something that he thought he already believed. And that was the power of forgiveness. And this is my testimony to you after three decades of experience, forgiveness of Christ, believing in the forgiveness of Christ, teaching in the believeness of Christ, preaching, proclaiming, knowing the forgiveness of Christ for the first time in my life. I more fully understand the depth of the forgiveness of Jesus because of my denial of him. Because in the coming of the very, because of coming to the very end of my strength and perseverance, because of my time, knowing I was failing, coming to him and telling him so. Because in that time, he let it be true because it was true. Because it was true, because it was deep, because it lasted for such a long time. Because although I failed others, my sin was against him and him only. 
and still he would not condemn me. He would not send me away. He would not stop using me. He would not stop forgiving me. Day after day after day after day. And I now have a new strength and a new assurance and a renewed trust in the anchor. I know now what Paul wrote and Peter believed that there is nothing, nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Along with Peter and Lewis and so many others who have discovered later in their life that they thought they understood only to find out they had no idea. And it's this it's this, into this light, that Peter writes the verse for today. In the light of that forgiveness where Peter cries out, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is an unmistakable part of the gospel that the only one who has the right to offense, the only one who has the right to act on his rejection, the only one who has the power to act on that offense, the only one who's completely justified in acting on that offense instead of crushing us saves us. In a scene from The Chosen, Nicodemus is standing in front of Jesus and finally realizes who Jesus is. And he starts to bend down. And as he does, he grabs Jesus' hand and he kisses his hand. And he quotes from Psalm 2, verse 12. And he says, kiss the son, lest you perish along the way. Because his wrath can be quickly kindled. And Jesus reaches over to Nicodemus and raises them and says, yes, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. The two insurmountable, unbelievable facts, the very one who has the right to crush us, instead reaches over and lifts us. Tozer says it beautifully when he writes this, we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. Just like Moses hid in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed him by, we must take refuge from God in God. There's the gospel. The last thing I'll close with. Forgiveness does not require a relationship. But Jesus didn't stop at forgiveness. He presses in to be with us. Look at the ending story of John's gospel. We have the disciples all going fishing. And Jesus is on the shore and he yells out to them. And they come to the shore. 
And Jesus yells out to them, come, have breakfast with me. And when they arrive at the shore, there's already fish on the fire. Jesus forgives us and then cries to each one of us, now come, come and be with me. And by the way, you don't need to bring anything. I'll always have everything you need. Let's pray. Let's stand together. Lord, we thank you for this word, for this truth. For the unbelievable truth that only you could claim. And I pray that we can drink of it in a new way. I thank you for the privilege that I have had. And I ask it for all of us. Your forgiveness, it's beyond our explanation to be truthful. It's beyond our words. It's beyond our full understanding. But could we drink deeper of it? We love you. We need you. Amen.